If you've ever wondered how your favorite writers go about crafting their written works, or if you've ever been interested in writing a book yourself, chances are you've wandered into a bookstore or a library scanning the shelves for some kind of guidance. Books on writing typically fall into two camps. Some are more centered on writing as philosophy, a way of life, less about how to write, and more about the author and their specific writing journey, like Annie Dillard's The Writing Life and Stephen King's On Writing, both of which are fascinating and inspiring, but not necessarily all that helpful if you're looking for some quick and dirty tips on revising a story. Many other books on writing, I would venture to say even most, act as coaches. They preach writing regimens and keeping daily journals, finding the time and making the space. The strategy with these is often to write as much as you can, as quickly as possible, because the goal is to get your foot in the door, to actually sit there and write something. But what comes after that? You've sat and written, and maybe you have enough for a novel or a memoir. The story is all there, but still, something's not quite right, and you can't be sure how to diagnose the problem. The characters don't relate to one another like real people. The dialogue feels stiff. The sentences just don't flow the way you've seen them do in your favorite Annie Dillard or Stephen King books. And maybe by now the self-doubt is starting to set in, and you're wondering, am I really cut out for this? Enter Dinty W. Moore, the longtime editor of the online publication Brevity, a journal of concise literary nonfiction, and the author of numerous books on writing, including his latest, called The Story Cure, a book doctor's pain-free guide to finishing your novel or memoir. Often, Moore says, when people write their stories, they tend to place the blame for the writing shortcomings on themselves. The book doctor, however, believes that whatever is ailing a novel or memoir in progress is not about the writer. It is about the story how well we understand it, how well we tell it, and how well we enable it to come alive in the reader's mind. With my co-host Eric LeMay and I today on the New Books Network is Dinty W. Moore, dispeller of the pervasive myth that good writing should be effortless, and a staunch believer that anyone is capable of writing and, with practice, of writing well. Welcome to the New Books Network, Dinty. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Um, so we're here today to talk about your new book, The Story Cure. And i got to tell you, so after reading this book and also your last book, Dear Mr. Essay Writer Guy, I feel like the Brevity Podcast should probably have some kind of Dear Dinty segment that where people be, can call in. That would be fun. That would be fun. I think you'd have a lot of great things to say. And so I, I, I don't typically find books about writing to be very helpful because they're usually focused on how to begin writing, like how to get yourself in the mindset of a writer, but this book is a little bit different than that. So can you talk a little bit about your intention with this book? I, I, both as a faculty member at Ohio University where I work with brilliant graduate students, and in the summer I will occasionally go to writers' conferences where um, I meet with writers who are in the middle of book projects or have finished a book project, but they're frustrated because nothing is happening with the book. Um, so my intention was to sort of write a book that explored, you know, what do you do when you're, when you know how to write and you're in the middle of a book project, which can mean the middle of the first draft or the middle of the fourth draft, you know, that, the, that's the middle of a book project as far as I'm concerned, both of those. What do you do when you're stalled? What do you do when you've lost track? of what you thought this book was going to be about. What do you do when you feel like you're writing in quicksand? The various ways that a book project gets bogged down or, or a writer loses, loses faith in what 
she's doing. So I thought I'd try to bring to the page some of the advice that I've found helpful over the years working with students in that position. Mm-hmm. And myself, by the way, I mean, all of the, all of the problems that these various students I've written, I work with run across. Um, the reason I'm able to address them is like I've been there last week. <laughs> now working on your own book project. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't get easy. Do you really go through four drafts? No, no, no. I go through 40 drafts. Four drafts was just where I often encounter students who are in need of, of, of a little bit of help getting the wheels of the, of the bus turning again. I'm, I'm, I and most of the writers I know who have made a continuous career of writing are just, you know, relentless about being the toughest editor in the world. I, nothing goes out the door of my office unless I've done 40 drafts and thrown away more pages than end up in the final product, thrown away more words than end up in the final product. Well, then let me ask you about what, what might be a myth, but it's something I hear a lot, especially from people who haven't started their book project yet, is, is you hear stories about the writer who sat down and wrote this thing. You hear about like Jack Kerouac, Jack Kerouac. writing on the roll of paper and it literally rolling out the door as he writes and, <laughs> you know, it's NaNoWriMo month, right? So you can do it in a month. Isn't that, isn't that how it works? It just takes a good month to get your masterpiece ready with this book, maybe three weeks. There's a lot of questions there. Um, Kerouac, he lived with his mother all of his life and then killed himself, so if that's what you aspire to, fine. <laughs> um, I think it's a bit of a myth. He did, I did apparently write on the long roll of paper, because it's in the Smithsonian, I believe. Um, whether he went back and edited or not, I think it turns out that he did. Um, whether he was high when he did it, there's conflicting information. Maybe Kerouac is the exception that proves the rule, but everybody who tries to be Kerouac, everybody, 99.99992% of usually young men who try to be Kerouac write really bad books. It just doesn't work that way. I don't think Kerouac actually worked that way, but even if he did, there's little to be learned from that except don't kill yourself. Um, did he kill himself? I don't know. Am I making that up? Dear reader, please email me and let me know if that's true. <laughs> it didn't end well for him, let's just put it that way. He, he, he did not live a long, successful life. Perhaps because of his working process. <sighs> yeah, so I've lost track of the question. Um, I believe there are writers. I know I've met one or two writers over the years whose process is different than everyone else. And by everyone else, I mean you write, a, you write a, a flawed first draft to try to find something worthwhile in that draft. You revise it, you throw half of it away, you start over in draft three or four. This is true of a 10-page essay or a book. In draft three or four, you start to go, aha, I think I see what this is really about. And you write towards that revelation. I've met a few writers who don't work that way. I hate them. I don't know how it works for them. You know, they write from the beginning and they polish each sentence. And when they're done, it's like, look, the book is done. And... They do polish each sentence, and they are using an enormous amount of, of brain power to keep track of the whole book as they're moving further into chapter nine. Um, again, that's the exception. If you know, if, if if you ask me, how do most people write books? 
that end up being successful. And by successful, I mean the reader is engaged, the reader is excited, the reader has has a has a a journey through the book. Um, sometimes also it sells a lot of copies. If you ask me how most people do that, I can tell you. If you make me tell you, and there is no other way on earth to do it, I can't tell you that. There are like any rule, some some exceptions to it that are just sort of odd outliers. Yeah, I wanted to, I think, get at the fact. So this is this is a long way of saying that your book is very practical and helpful and actually speaks to the writer who's weeping over the fourth draft and wants to move forward and can't figure out how to do it. And I think part of it is that you're often, that, it, that young authors are often bogged down by this myth of it should be going better. It should be easier. It should not require this kind of... No, it does. It does. And being bogged down, writing a bad first draft, writing a bad second draft, being on draft 10 of chapter 4 and suddenly realizing chapter 4 doesn't even belong in the book is not failure. It's part of the process. It's failure if you let that stop you. Or it's failure if you go, oh, never mind, and push a bad product out the door. But, you know, your first few drafts are just sort of confusing attempts to narrow down what you're writing about. You've been working on it for a year, and you suddenly realize this chapter you just spent a month on doesn't even add anything to the book. You have to throw all those words away. That's not failure. That's, that's the process of writing. It's tough. I mean, if you look at the great paintings and the great museums, they've recently come up with these lights and x-rays where they can look underneath the brushstrokes. And what they find out often is the, the painter painted that same painting poorly 30 times and then, you know, it just kept building up the, the, the oil paint and the painting we're looking at is, is draft 30. And writing is the same thing. Um, so I had a question for you about the primary metaphor that we see throughout the story tour. Um, because I feel like sometimes writers, and particularly writers in writing programs, can get so wrapped up in the artistry what they're doing, you know, so they write something and maybe they're five or six drafts in and they've sort of lost sight of what the core of the story is, right? And that maybe the core of what they're doing is to tell a compelling story, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Um, And so your answer to that is the metaphor of the invisible magnetic river. Yes. So could you explain a little bit about what that is and how you came up with it? It's my substitute for theme when I was in high school work of literature had a theme as if, you know, as if every author, Melville and beyond was some great philosopher slash theologian who had an important lesson for mankind and then wrote a book so we could explain this important lesson uh, for mankind, which I've met more and more and more and more writers. It's not how it works. When I first started teaching, I was as guilty as anybody else of, of saying, you know, what does this poem mean or what does this story mean? What does the writer mean in this essay? It makes it sound like it's a puzzle. Once you solve what they mean, um, you can walk away and say, yeah, I solved that one. You know, we'll get until the New York Times comes next week and there'll be another puzzle at the, at the back of the magazine. So that frustrated me, too, because that's not how it works. A piece of literature doesn't just mean something. It's not a bit of information. It, it's an emotional experience. It's a work of art. So I came up with Invisible Magnetic River, which is many more words than theme or meaning, but it's as best I can do to narrow it down. It's invisible because thesis sentences are boring. You don't need to explain it to the reader, and sometimes when you do explain it to the reader, it's much less interesting. 
than letting the reader get there on her own. It's a river, you know, because it, it doesn't have to be a straight line. A river can meander, a river gets wider and slows down, a river gets narrower and speeds up. A river not just meanders, sometimes it sends off side shoots that then come back and rejoin the main current of the river, but it's always moving forward towards some, some conclusion. The Gulf of Mexico, uh, or in the metaphor, the sort of emotional uh, resolution of, 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 of what's going on under the story. And it's magnetic, because once you determine what that current is, what the main current is, what the side currents are, how the side currents connect to the main current. And by current, I mean sort of the emotion of the story, the, the questions, the emotional questions that drive the story. Once you determine what that river, 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 that river is, everything, every scene, every metaphor, every image, every chapter should be drawn towards that central current of the invisible river magnetically. And if it isn't, then maybe it's beautifully written, maybe it's aesthetically pleasing, maybe it's theoretically astute, but it just doesn't belong. It belongs someplace else. And, you know, an entire work of art where everything seems inevitable and everything seems connected is because it all has that magnetic pull. How do, how do you know that? Is it, it, it feels like magnetism is kind of a force, so is it an, an intuitive feel after multiple rereads that this doesn't belong? Is it a more cerebral process? Good question. Especially when something's meandering, right? If yeah. I'm going off on this tangent... How do I know that's the eddy in the river that contributes to the current and adds yeah, something? But a real river can't, you know, meander too far away, or it loses, or especially a side current, where it loses the momentum and just goes dry. Uh, it's a lot of it's an intuitive process. Maybe it goes back and forth between intuitive and cerebral. Some days I think about my work and think, well, what is the question I'm asking in this chapter? What is the question I'm asking in this essay? What question is this book asking? So all this stuff over here, is it serving to get me closer to an answer? Sometimes it's not, I'm not cerebral about it. Sometimes it really is. I read my work out loud to myself a lot. Um, I hear things when I read my work out loud to myself. And intuitively or instinctively, I start to think, this belongs. This, that doesn't belong, does it? God, that sounds pretty, but it doesn't belong. So it's, you know, it, it goes back, and I think... I think a lot of artists would say this, choreographers, I know choreographers, I know painters, I met uh, playwrights. You're always going back and forth between the part of your brain that thinks and plans and the part of your brain that is, is intuitive and senses things and lets unintended uh, moments onto the page or onto the canvas or onto the stage. I think that's why artists are exciting because you get to live in both realms. Yeah, and so with the Invisible Magnetic River, how does that factor in with the plot? Um, because you write in the story here that Kurt Vonnegut famously insisted every character should want something, even if it is only a glass of water. I think, I think they say on the first page, I think it's even said on the first page or in the first it's, paragraph. It's in like the first chapter. Yeah. So this is like one of the first ideas um, or questions that the book poses. And so my question is, how, how then does a glass of water grow into the invisible magnetic river because the glass of water is more plot-based mm -hmm. and the river is more metaphorical. Yeah, I mean, in that instance, Vonnegut says that every character needs to want something 
very early on, mm-hmm. even if it's only a glass of water. That's his quote, even if it's only a glass of water. And that glass of water represents something. And that glass of water represents the river. And that river represents some emotional need, desire, aspiration of the main character. If we're talking about a novel of the main character who happens to be the author or the author at a younger age, if we're talking about a memoir, um, you know, that, that glass of water represents that, 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 that need that drives. You know, if I'm writing a memoir and I'm writing a memoir about myself from the age of 18 to 24, um, what drove me through those years? What, what, what ping-ponged me through the, the confusion of it? What allowed me to survive is my glass of water. And novel created for the character. So in, the, in, in nonfiction, it's about kind of looking into yourself and figuring out, like, what was that desire that drove me forward into this experience through this event as a result of nonfiction is funny because nonfiction is like a, 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 a schizophrenic or a dual a dual activity. It's, it's so so I'm writing if I'm writing about if I'm writing about myself at a certain age uh-huh. um, or myself last week, um, but looking back, it's like yeah, what what is it that I was after? What did I want? What motivated me? But it's also the me sitting at the keyboard, the author in, in 2017, the author at the moment. He's writing the book. And it's like, well, what does he want? Why is he holding these moments up under the light and, 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 and studying them? What, what questions are, are, is the author asking? So, for instance, you know, there's a memoir of, of a particular author's childhood, which is just this happened and then that happened and this happened and then that happened. And then this happened, and then that happened. You know, it might have resonance for the author because they lived through it, but it doesn't really, it's not much happening there for the reader. Um, the memoir that I'm pushing people to write is these things happened, and I'm going to tell you about this, these specific things because a lot happened, but these moments seem connected somehow, the magnet. Um, and, and I'm studying them because I'm wondering about who I was then, why I made those choices, that I misunderstand something, that I think my sister was, was as angry and, and vindictive towards me, or does it turn out, looking back 20 years, that she was hurt or jealous, and I just couldn't grasp it then, but I'm starting to see more clearly now. Um, why did my parents, you know, this can, if you're writing that memoir of childhood, the memoirs can be about age 60 to 65, and not to be about childhood. Um, if you read that memoir of childhood, you know, my parents were both good people. My parents loved me. My parents, to a certain a certain level, loved each other. And yet everything got screwed up so badly for everyone. Why? What happened? What can I understand by look, taking these moments and, and turning them over and putting some light on them and thinking about them? That's the... So it's what, what does the author want? Otherwise, why, why are they telling me this story? Why, why spend you know, four months writing an essay or, or four years writing a book unless there's something you were trying to discover. So how does that change with fiction then, right? You have these characters. You could imagine imagine somebody sitting there and saying, okay, so my character wants love. That's her glass of water. That's his glass of water. How does that get transformed into 
a character that's rich and compelling and psychologically nuanced. I mean, when it comes from life, presumably we all have his basic needs or basic wants, basic needs, but rich complex experiences, yeah. right? But each of us gets there differently. Each of us is born with different circumstances. By the time we're six months old or six hours old, what has happened to us in those first six hours, or certainly in those first six months, shapes everything going forward. Our insecurities, our fears, our our impulses, our comfort places, you know, are all formed in those early years. So in the novel, it's, it's like, well, okay, so there's a character named David Copperfield. You know, he wants to survive, and then he wants to battle injustice. He wants there to be... Um, some justice for the for the for the downtrodden in in the world. Um, a lot of people want that. A lot of people want to survive, especially if they're born, you know, in circumstances like David Copperfield was. But there are many people out there who want then to somehow, you know, fight the good fight and and and, and see justice done, or at least see fairness done. But everybody does it a little differently. So everybody's life is different. So Copperfield's story is shaped by his early years. That's the author sort of putting himself, in this case Dickens, you know, inside of Copperfield and, and saying, okay, you know, I'm feeling this for him. These are actually my emotions, but this 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 person I've shaped on the page who has a beginning and and situations and ways of and, and influences, how is he gonna react at every moment of this journey? Okay, so um, let me ask you a question about sort of the, the conceit of the book. So the conceit is that you are the book doctor, um, and that there are some sort of common ailments that plague books at this stage, right, where presumably the writer has most of what they want, the events on the page, but they're not quite sure how to link them together or to flesh out certain aspects. What are the most common ailments you see yeah. in the manuscript. So let me say it. Sometimes I like, sometimes I the book doctor idea, which I didn't coin the phrase. There are people out there who help authors. I've been using the term book doctor you know, for longer than I've, I've been around doing this. Sometimes I think it's a wonderful metaphoric conceit to call myself the book doctor. And with the story here, sometimes it just seems so corny. I can barely stand to repeat it. But I'll, I'll, I'll pretend for the moment that I'm entirely confident now that I am the book doctor and that, that I can cure the ailments. Um, I, 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 could, I could push the metaphor. You know, some of the common ailments are anemia. It just doesn't seem to be enough happening in the sentences and in the pages and in the story. Um, there's... I, I, could be, I, I could go on all day. There's having a stroke in the middle. But, you know, basically... Basically, it's losing your way partly, you know, partway through and forgetting what it's about. It's, it's, this is true again in fiction and nonfiction. It's giving the reader too much information. So the reader is just like, come on already, I've got it. Let's move this story along. It's leaving too much information out because you, the writer, have all these vivid images in your mind of the world you're writing about, fictional or, or nonfictional. And you just somehow forget to tell the reader. And the reader's like, huh? What? Oh. Wait, who's that character? Why is this happening? Wait a minute. Three pages ago, this was happening, and now why am I suddenly, you know, transported to Chillicothe? Uh, I thought this was happening in Cleveland. Um, 
There's inconsistency of voice. Um, voice is hard to find. You know, it, it takes much trial and error. But you know, there's there's there's, there's a, a author who's too overbearingly angry, and that's sort of strangling the book. There's an author who's trying too hard to be funny, and it's coming off um, false. Uh, there's beginning in the wrong place. There's there's, 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 there's the, all everything everything everything. I remember that was a hell of a sentence. Everything is what goes wrong with the book. Um, let me look. That's why I'm a writer. Because you know, if you ask me that question, then let me go off and, and write four or five answers. Um, the fifth draft of the answer would be coherent, and I would seem wise. And really, I got to babble and look for an answer, and I've actually totally lost track of what I'm what I'm saying right now. What was the question? Just about the various ailments. Oh, the various that ailments are the most common. Thing. Most common are overplotting, which is true. You know, even in a memoir. I mean, you can, even though the stuff really happened, you can overplot because it's like, well, which you don't tell me everything that ever happened. You don't tell me the time that your sister visited and, you, and nothing interesting happened and you had a long conversation, none of which relates to the hard story of the book. You know, you've got to figure out these moments in a real life, your memoir, Zoe, you know, how do you connect them and which ones do you put in there? Do you tell them chronologically or is it more interesting to begin like Cheryl Strait did in the middle of the hike when the boot comes flying off the cliff into the into the forest and then back up and say, how did that Cheryl Strait character in the memoir Wild, if you're not familiar with it, um, this is a great book. Um, you know, how did you start in the middle somewhere and how did you get there? Some people start at the end. And there's all kinds of different ways of, of ordering and plotting a novel, but even a true story that where the plot points are things that actually happen. So many all kinds of decisions about which ones to put in, which ones to give a lot of time to, which ones to handle in a sentence or two. Um, you know, a long story of, of the family and your father being upset and your sister crying in the kitchen takes four or five pages. Um, you bring it really to life and we see the body language and we see your sister's anguish and we see the father's anger and we see the mother standing in the doorway just frozen. You know, and then the next morning... Maybe you're just going to say that dad got up early and drove away. You don't have to write the line. You don't have to hear their car start. You don't have to hear the door slam. You don't have to hear the birds sing. You don't have to know what kind of car it was. So just even deciding where am I going to show and where am I going to tell um, is part of plotting. So too much plot, too little plot, nothing happens. Or the same thing happens over and over again. Now I, gotta, you know, I had a... A difficult childhood because, because my one of my parents was an alcoholic, and in chapter two, I'm still having a difficult childhood because one of my parents was an alcoholic, and in chapter three, I'm having a difficult childhood because one of my parents is alcoholic. Um, that is included in true many people's lives, but that's not that's not a story. A story is moving forward from you know. So because of that, then what happens? Because of that, well, then what happens? You know, does the author try to, as a child? you know, push back against whatever the circumstances are. So too much plot, too little plot, starting in the wrong place. Um, voice, uh, anemia, anemia. Just, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to build up sentences that are rich and vibrant and, and put the reader right there as if they're in the room, um, seeing things happening. Those are some of the more common. Yeah. That's great.
So I, I have a question about the metaphor that the government book. So when when you see a doctor for your health, right? Yes. You don't self-diagnose. You go in and you say, my eye hurts. And he says, you have glaucoma. You have iritis. You have a cataract. You have double vision. You None have of which hurt, by the way. None of which. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you have a, a nail in your eye. Thank you. Um, and then the doctor says, right, like, here's the problem. Here's the solution. So what I'm curious about is is how you imagine the reader using the book because they won't have you there like your students do to say, oh, this is anemic or, oh, you're starting in the wrong place. They're going to have this book, that this draft that hurts, and then they're going to have your book. <laughs> I, have, I have a nail. I have a nail. <laughs> I have a nail in the middle of my book. Right? Um, so when you picture, you know, if there's somebody out there saying, like, this might be the thing I need, What's it going to look like them to, to work with the book and work with their draft? Like, how does that... Have you read the book, Eric? I have. This is what's brilliant about the book. <laughs> <laughs> I would like our listeners to know what's brilliant about the book. Uh, I'm teasing a bit, I think. Um, there, there, are, you know, there, are, there are questions in the book that help people self-diagnose. There are exercises where you can find what the glass of water is for your character or yourself for their memoir. There's... There's ways, you know, there's, I try to recreate on the page as much as I can what would happen if, if myself or somebody else who works like I do, with, you know, with people in the middle of a writing project, the questions they would ask and the ways they would try to lead the reader, the, the writer, excuse me, uh, to finding a solution. And I think writers often know or sense what's wrong. They just don't want to admit it because it's like, oh God, you know, I've got, I've got, the whole story and the told in the wrong order, or I've told I've told the wrong moments and I have to go back and tell the other moments that are I didn't really want to write about, but it turns out I do have to write about them because that's where the real story is. I think writers often know that. Um, and and I'm not talking about beginning writers, I'm talking about writers at all levels. And it's just like we're in denial. And so you read you read a book like mine and there's other books like it that I read sometimes or I talk to other writers and, and they're saying, well, you know, there's this problem that happened with, with this student of mine or this friend of mine or this problem I have with my own book. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh God, yep, that's it. That's what's wrong with my book right now. That's, that's why my writing project is stalled. So, you know, at the very least, um, I hope when you read the descriptions of, of certain books that were working and certain books that weren't working, you know, that I saw out there in the world or read the descriptions of <coughs> where where writers go astray or where writers lose their way or how books just sort of get stalled and, and, and sit there and metaphorically spin their wheels in the sand. I, I think writers will often recognize without having a brilliant person like you or you or a generous person like me, um, but not as brilliant there to say, no, no, look, it's this right there. I think that often the, the, the writer can often do that for themselves, but they need they need somebody to sort of snap them out of like, I don't want to see it. Oh. This moment of recognition. Yeah. And you provide ample examples of mistakes. Yes. Some of them my own. <laughs> I mean, that's what writing is. It's like you try stuff out, it doesn't work. You go, oh, well, that didn't work. I'm not going to do that again. You try stuff out, it works. You go, oh, that worked. I'm going to try to do more of that. 
You try something out, it works. You go, next time I'm going to do that again. You try, it doesn't work this time. Um, you know, trial and error, trial and error. Learn from your mistakes. Listen to your intuition. Read a lot of other people's work. If you read something that seems wonderful, flip the hood, look under the under the hood, study the engine of the story, say, why did this work? What, what made this work so well? If you read something that, that isn't working, whether it's your own draft or a book you bought in the bookstore or you're in a writing group and somebody else brings something in that isn't quite ready for uh, the bestseller list, you know, open the open the, the hood, look under the hood at the engine of the story and say, why isn't it working? What isn't working here? Where is that? Why is there blue smoke coming out of the tailpipe? What is that gooey stuff dripping all over the floor of the garage? You'll, you'll learn as much studying chapters or essays or scenes you've written that don't work. Maybe you learn more studying things you've written that don't work than you do studying things you've written that do work. Because, you know, I, I read something that I wrote that I think works really well, and my reaction is, thank God, let's move on. <laughs> What's, what's one of the biggest mistakes you've made that's been the most useful in your career? I mean, useful as in... Well, you, you, you just kind of said you make these mistakes, and that allows you to, yeah. to figure things out, to, to perhaps even learn more. Well, my, my first book is my fourth book. As in, I wrote three books that never found a publisher and never saw the light of day. Um, and, and I know I learned from that that I was pushing too hard. I mean, I was, I was my own. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm that person who thought that every book had a theme and every, every book had some sort of meaning planted in it. I had to unlearn that myself before I could start talking about why that idea was wrong. So my, 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 well, my early stories, the shorter things I wrote, short fiction, short nonfiction, you know, I got pushed it too hard. I tried to sound profound. I tried to make a point. I tried to sound like Raymond Carver. I tried to sound like Annie Dillard. Um, and that's about, all of those were mistakes. And what I learned from it is, is you have to sort of let go and, and just try to tell a good story. And if you tell a good story, it's not exactly like you were sitting in a bar or a coffee shop talking to a friend. There's a conceit to writing. It's, it's cleaner. It's crisper. It's more orderly than just sitting around telling a story. But if you think about it, I just have to tell a good story. Um, sometimes that other stuff, the profundity, the, the thematic unity, all that stuff starts to take care of itself. Um, that's a lesson I learned. That's a lesson I learned earlier. So all of that sort of takes care of itself. Until it doesn't. Until it doesn't. And that's when you refer to the story here. Oh, I mean, right. or, or you just, yeah. I mean, or you just have, yeah, you should buy the book. You should buy <laughs> many copies of the book. But, you know, or you don't. And that's when you sit there at your typewriter for days on end and you think, God, it's not working. Why isn't it working? Oh, my goodness, it's not working. Oh, I hate it. Oh, I can't. I can't even type a sentence because every sentence I write, every sentence I type, I just hate. Um, you know, that's when you go through that and just wait it out. It's not that's not failure. That's kind of part of the process for everybody. That those swells, those swells of of failure. Not, not, well, it's not failure. It's not failure. Those those swells of, of nothing good is happening at the typewriter uh, or you know at the end of your pencil. They just come and you have to wait them out. They're only failure if you quit. Or walk away. So yeah, 
you learn what works, you get better at it, you start to trust your intuition, you find a rhythm of revision that, that, that keeps you working and your work gets better. Slowly but surely, then one day, it's like, ah, the wells run, run dry. Um, I can't tell you how many times I thought, I'm never going to write another interesting thing in my life. I guess I've written myself. It was 20 years ago. Uh, I'm never going to write another interesting thing in my life. I've written everything interesting I have to say. I guess I'm done. And, you know, I'm still writing 20 years later. It's just, I have to sort of sit there and say, yeah, okay, that's, you know, that's, that's a negative voice. And, and maybe it's true, but I'm just going to keep writing anyway. And pretty soon you trick yourself into writing something interesting. So then what is the difference to you between a successful writer and an unsuccessful writer in terms of that sort of mindset? Successful writer. Yeah. Works hard to get better. Yeah. She, like everybody else, has these moments of, ah, this is the best book ever. I'm having the most wonderful, it's good. I'm going to be, you know, fall asleep thinking about Oprah's going to call in the morning, but, but then wakes up the next day and says, okay, I need to get back to work and make this better and make this better. And I'm going to learn, I'm going to get better. The unsuccessful writer says, wow, I just wrote a whole book. I wrote 200 pages. It's only my first draft, but I guess it's done. And I'm not going to change anything. And this is my vision. And, and um, I just have to understand that it's painstaking work. It shouldn't be painful. It shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't hate yourself and want to die. Um, but it's painstaking. Is it pain-free? <laughs> Different types of pain. It's, I mean, the, the pain freeze in the subtitle of the book, The Story Cure. You shouldn't feel like somebody's sticking a, a sword into your stomach. You shouldn't sit there with, you know, horrible headaches about how horrible you are. Um, those are the sort of pains that you shouldn't be having. Some people do. You shouldn't self-loathe because your first draft was not a masterpiece. If it was, you know, thank God that that doesn't happen very often. There's debilitating pain that makes you not go back to the gym. Those of you who have been to a gym and lifted weights or, 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 or done, you know, running or, or, or work out on a bike, and then there's, there's a sort of pain that comes on and stops you from going back to the gym. I think I just said the same thing twice. The pain that stops you from going to the gym or, or riding your bike or whatever, uh, the debilitating pain, that, that you shouldn't, if that's entering into your writing life, you've got to find a way past that, around that. You've got to realize that you're probably bringing that on yourself. You've got to figure out what the stories you want to tell. But the pain that you feel because you're working really, really hard in the gym, I don't know if this is metaphors, working very, really hard right now, but... It's the one I just came up with. <laughs> the pain you feel because you worked out really, really hard. It was hard. Um, you know, I'll go back to writing now. You work really hard on a book or an essay or a poem or a story. Your brain's going to get tired. Your brain's going to be times you're just like, oh, my, my brain hurts from thinking so hard. But that's not a debilitating pain. That's like the pain you feel at the end of a, of a, of a workout, or in this case, a mental workout. Uh, 
because it's painstaking. It takes hard work. Yeah. It always seems to me like there's, even when you're writing about an experience that's hard, of depression or anxiety or spiritual exhaustion or emptiness or something like that, the good work or the good moments, there always seems to be some kind of vibrancy in the experience of the writing itself. Like, I've had fellow writers come to me and I've had it to myself where you just feel exhausted or you feel like this is drudgery and it's, the good stuff is not going to come out at that moment, right? Um, so there's some sort of like, I, I have something to bring to it. And, and I think one way to describe what you're talking about is, is when you're just, you don't have any capacity at that point. You know, writing a novel is not like the March to Burma, though it feels like it at that moment. Mm-hmm. It's like the March to Burma to bring democracy or something like there's some sort of purpose that drives you that it just can't be like digging a ditch for the sake of digging a ditch. Yeah. I mean, it's, there are days that it feels like that. If you've been, it's felt like that for months and months and you look at the pages and they feel painful and sluggish if they're being dragged through the jungles of Burma unwillingly. Um, then you've got a problem. There are days that feel like that. You've got to find the exhilaration again. Um, you know, you're discovering things about yourself you didn't realize. You're discovering things about your childhood that you didn't realize until you started writing this project. That's exhilarating. Um, your characters are starting to speak back to you, and your characters are taking on a life of their own because you've made them so real that they're telling you what they want to do with that glass of water and and what they would do in a given situation. That's exhilarating. You found a metaphor that holds all these pieces of, of the, the, the work together. And that metaphor is not only like a, a nice writing thing. It's like, hey, it's nice to have a metaphor that lasts for 30 pages, or it's nice to have a metaphor that carries across the various chapters of the book. Um, but that metaphor also often helps you and the reader sort of see more clearly what, what is going on in the story or underneath the story down there in that invisible river. I mean, that's where the acceleration comes in. Blow a chapter up. <laughs> you know, I've worked on a chapter for four months and I'm just going to blow it up and I'm going to start over and dive in from an entirely different place. And Oh my God, this is so interesting. Different things are happening. I didn't see this coming. That's true in, 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 in memoir or, not, or, or fiction. Because again, you know, in memoir, or nonfiction generally, you know, what you have is what really happened. But the questions you ask of it, or where you begin the question asking, or where you where the reader comes and enters and the first thing they learn, and how they connect that to the second thing they learn, and how they connect that to the third thing they learn, you know, all of that changes according to the, the choices of the writer. So that's exhilarating when you have those sort of breakthroughs. You've got to, so yeah, you're slugging through does Burma have jungles? I think it does. Oh, yeah. You're slugging yes. through the jungles of Burma, you know, carrying a way too heavy pack, and it's been going on for too long, and the sentences feel labored because of it, and the book feels stuck because of it. you got to find a way out of that and, and get back to the exhilaration. Not that you don't have bad days. I'm not yeah. ever suggesting it's like every day is just happy, and I'm writing a book, <laughs> and oh, look, I'm clever, and I know exactly what to put there. Um, but it shouldn't be dead, 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 deadly painful, deadly, dead. I can't say that word. Deadly. 
dead in it. Yeah. Yeah. It shouldn't be. Dead in the Yes, thank you. That's the word I'm trying to get out. So maybe, you know, if you are experiencing that sense of drudgery, like you're digging a ditch, maybe that's an indication that you've sort of lost sight of the heart story or right. sort of lost sight of the invisible magnetic river or gotten to a point where you realize that you're not really sure where the river's going. And that, right. that's not horrible. That happens. Yeah. It's but you've but, but, but you got to recognize it and say, whoa, you know, I just can't keep walking up this hill and not get anywhere. Right. So maybe I need to, like, try a different approach, jump to another. I mean, sometimes if you're working on a book, just, like, stop working on Chapter 3 and go back and, and work on Chapter 6 some more. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's blowing up the book and saying, you know, I wrote this prologue that it's the beginning of this book about hell and, and, and you know, and sin, and this is the book I'm working on right now. And I've rewritten this prologue a hundred times. And, uh, no, that's not where the book starts. See, you know, I just blow it up, throw it out, and, and start all over again. And, you know, there's snippets of chapter two and snippets of chapter five that are going to somehow live through the conflagration of blowing up the book. But you really, you know, it's like, no, it's, you know, I've written myself, I've written myself into a corner, or there's certain video games where, you know, if, if you play video games where you, you have to solve something at a certain point. It's like you have no more moves. Um, so you have to start all over again. And they are in a video game, it's easy. You just get a button. Sometimes in a book, you've got to rid yourself into a place where I have no more moves. I'm either going to just keep working on this book and making it more and more turgid, or I better just like find a new way in and cut the book in half. And it all starts in chapter four. But okay. when you get there, it can be exhilarating. That's also it's one of the most, you know, we begin with like, oh, it's not working. And then, oh, this hurts. And then, oh, look, I'm doing this. And then, oh, I'm having fun again. And the, and the reader can tell if, if you're well, having fun. In a fun book, the reader can tell if you're having fun. In a book that perhaps is more somber, there's not a lot of occasion for fun. The reader can tell if you're fascinated by it. The world that you're exploring, even if it's painful. I'm aware that we are about out of time, so I would ask you one final question, which is if you wanted a writer to have one idea, to carry something in their head as they sit down to write, in the way that you might say to a boxer before you push them into the center of the ring, keep your hands up, or to somebody who's about to ride a bike, you know, pedal and look forward, what kind of advice would you send, send that writer into their draft? You've got to find a way to keep the, the reader awake. <laughs> you can say really smart things. You can write really beautiful sentences. You can have a wonderful idea. You can have a true story, a memoir, where, you know, where what happened is actually amazing that that happened. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to write it in such a way that the reader stays awake and turns the pages in this. You have to think about the reader. They're the one. They're the ones that have to understand, explore, learn, be amused, or be moved by what's going on on the page. Not, not, not the writer. Keep the reader awake. Keep the reader awake. Thank you for keeping us awake this over this hour. Thank you. <laughs> All right. My name is Zoe Bossier, and you've been listening to an interview with my co-host Eric LeMay and author Dinty W. Moore on the New Books Network.